Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. For every light that I get lit, there's a hundred more that I can see out there that are candles in my life that aren't lit. And if I light a hundred more of them, I'll see a thousand more. And if I light a thousand of them, I'll see a million more. And that it never stops. So why would you ever stop? Prison's an awful environment. And finding your way and finding happiness and finding peace and finding freedom in a place where they shoot you if you touch the fence. If you can find happiness and freedom in prison, you can find it anywhere. After taking so much from the world as a kid, I felt like I was gonna need to repay kind of a debt of honor for a world that allowed me to become something better, that I owed something. If there's a thing that I can do, if there's a purpose, and I believe strongly in it, it's creating value and utilizing whatever talents you have to give to the world more than you take. Joe Cecil is a supply chain professional, serial entrepreneur, and real estate investor. Raised by a single Jewish mom in Topeka, Kansas, Joe was a bright but troubled and rebellious child. He was first convicted of criminal activity at age 10 when he joined older kids breaking into a Catholic school. Failure to play by the rules and obey the law was a pattern for Joe in adolescence. His behavior earned him multiple stays in short-term mental hospitals. Diagnoses of everything from acute paranoid schizophrenia to manic depressive to antisocial disorder. He was committed in 1995 for an indefinite period at St. Francis Hospital in Salina, Kansas, and spent nine months in a mental ward in the middle of nowhere. Joe began selling drugs his freshman year in high school, and by the time he was 19 years old, he was selling about $1 million of meth a month in Northeast Kansas. During this period, Joe was a public speaker for the Shawnee County Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program and a choir singer and soloist in many choirs, including a performance at Gustav Mahler's 8th Symphony with the Kansas City Symphony Choir and Washburn University Choir. On May 7, 1993, three days after his 19th birthday, Joe was arrested for possessing $172,000 of meth in a federal investigation called Operation Heartland. During the 11 years he spent behind bars, he was able to focus on himself and find purpose. Using his brain and his skills for good became a focus of his life after asking the question, who am I and what kind of person do I want to be? He was 21 years old the first time he considered these questions seriously. An autodidact with an abundance of time, Joe pursued studies in philosophy, literature, language, communication and intelligence theory, law and medical science, business, real estate investing, and neuro-linguistic programming. 
Today, Joe is on the path of searching for meaning among his fellow humans. He wants to create more value in the world than he consumes, and that is the basis for his actions. His frame is one of lifelong learning. He believes that things aren't good or bad, but instead that all events are opportunities for learning. What is the lesson is always the question. Joe is dedicated to using his communication skills as a conduit for sharing what he has learned on his journey and helping people to see more and better their choices in life. He believes that he has more in life than he could ever hope for and hopes that his gratitude and enthusiasm for life are contagious. I first met Joe through an online community I started in the spring of 2017 with meetup.com. I had recently moved back to Kansas from a year and a half of an adventurous lifestyle. I had read a book called Designing Your Life with a couple of friends in California and decided I should start a community of like-minded, entrepreneurially spirited, intentional people in my hometown of Topeka. I wrote a long manifesto and I scheduled the first meeting and I had a whopping one guest show up and it was Joe. Over a beer and a couple of hours, I learned a tremendous amount of things from Joe and was completely fascinated with his story. His mindset was something I had already been trying to emulate, but he was fully living it. His age, experience, and commitment to a process of continued learning and application was very impressive. His level of expression for the decisions he's made in his life and how the things he's learned from prison have manifested in his life was outstanding. Six months later, I found myself having started a podcast featuring people exactly like him, and I decided to ask if we could meet again. I had done some extended travel since the spring, so we had a reintroduction meeting. I met him and his daughter at the Westridge Mall in Topeka, and afterwards we bounced on trampolines and climbed on a wall above a foam pit at Sky Zone. We decided the next day to record our conversation in his empty home he had just sold in Topeka. I think there are so many angles in which you can be inspired by Joe, and I'm proud to present our interview. I sincerely hope you enjoy listening to today's episode with Joe Cecil. Hey, Joe. Hi there. How are you today? It's a good day. Yeah, good. Thanks for uh, coming, meeting me right after work. I know there's a lot to ask of you, and you said that you didn't sleep a lot last night. And you've been running around doing lots of things. Appreciate taking the time for this. For sure. 2018 is a new year, and a new schedule, and a new life, and a new house. And so we're sitting here in my house that looks like a complete disaster because I just moved out of it, and I haven't come back to clean it. And that's probably a metaphor for my life. Like if there's one constant for me, it's change and challenging myself to do the hard stuff required. I remember in a drug program a few years ago that I ended up attending, even though I wasn't a drug addict, there was a thing that talked about how the first step of change is feeling uncomfortable. So I almost, as much as no one likes to feel uncomfortable, I hate feeling uncomfortable, but I've gotten to where I can even generate enthusiasm out of a feeling of discomfort because I know that that just means that change is happening. Yeah. One path forward. That's great. Yeah, I know. So yesterday um, we, we also met and that was really great to be able to go to Sky Zone with your daughter and to hear more about kind of your backstory and some of the philosophies that kind of shape your life. And you mentioned this book quote, and like most people I talk to don't just have an entire like, you know, 
three sentence book quote memorized off the top of their head, but you did. Could you remind the listeners what that was from that Dune book? I think it was. Ah, Dune. Okay. So <laughs> Dune's one of my very favorite books in the whole wide world by Frank Herbert. Let me plug this guy. He wrote an amazing book. Uh, and uh, the quote was actually from, uh, from one of the beginnings of one of the chapters where the main character uh, is able to see the future. And they talk about how he could see the future but that he was very careful not to choose the safe path, any safe path forward because, and the quote is the safe path leads ever down into stagnation. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, that's definitely another thing that I live by. Like there's a million quotes and a million good things in Dune, but the safe path does lead ever down into stagnation. Uh, So I find myself, taking the riskier path and it's not for everybody, but, uh, it's been, I've been able to be successful riding that line. And yeah. also you never get bored with it. Yeah, no, I, I can tell you've built up a ton of momentum recently. Um, and you're doing lots of great things. And that's a huge reason that you're a guest on the podcast. So, um, I guess you mentioned yesterday, you put this, this, this decade of your life kind of front and center could you as well do that for the podcast kind of where did you come from and where are you now in like a short short period of time yeah sure all right so we'll start at uh at early days early youth uh had a had an unhappy childhood lots of people do some people have great childhoods and you know what it really doesn't matter if you have a good childhood or a bad childhood uh i was in prison with a person who had a perfect childhood. He was an exchange student in France. He had every opportunity in the world, had a great family, had lots of support, went off to college, came back and robbed a bank and went to federal prison. Uh, And in the same, you know, in the same way, I had a very unhappy childhood and uh, a very exciting adolescence. So I was a nerdy kid. I was smart. It was the 80s, and I really didn't have a whole lot of direction. I was raised by a single mom. She was a little bit uh, uh, on the emotional side, and, but she did the best she could, and she was, she was a good mom. She always took care of me. She always loved me. Having a mom, like having a parent love you is really important, mm-hmm. and you can get away with a lot of so-so parenting that way, but... Uh, I still ended up going through school, doing some cool stuff. I was a public speaker for a while with the teen pregnancy prevention program. Nice. Yeah. So it was, it was a very cool thing. When I was 12 years old, I walked into a room with, uh, a bunch of pregnant teenage girls and I was 12 and I was a virgin and I was supposed to be talking to them about teen pregnancy. And it turned into a great listening opportunity for me. And it was horrifying. It was totally a trap. It was totally a setup. And I totally BS my way through it. And after that, after being in the worst case scenario for a person who is supposed to be an expert on subject matter, every time that I went to speak after that, it was easier. So kind of turning an obstacle into an opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's all about... It, it's all about the frame. So also as a teenager, while I was this uh, star public speaker uh, for the Shawnee County Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program, 
Uh, I got into drugs because I wanted to be cool, because I wanted to rebel, but I didn't want to do it in a violent way. I didn't want to hurt people. I was really pretty soft. Like I was a pretty soft, sensitive kid. I always had literary ambitions, uh, but I ended up getting into a lot of trouble and finding out that I was really good. It's really funny because my, my current career, uh, I'm a supply chain guy at a, a global manufacturing company and I have background in logistics and supply chain. As a teenager, I ended up being a drug trafficker and I was good at it. And I wasn't an addict. And so I ended up uh, becoming a big drug dealer. Uh, when, I, when I was arrested in May of 1999, uh, made the front page of the newspaper and I was the record meth bust in Shawnee County history at the time. Uh, I think the, the headline was meth bust seizes $172,000 of drugs or something. And that was definitely where I began my next life because I knew that I couldn't go back to that. And I had no idea, really, I had no idea of the consequences. As an 18-year-old kid, the only thing I knew about criminal guidelines was what, the, what I saw in Law and Order, where the two lawyers meet up and the guy's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll go ahead and have him plead to five years and he'll do 18 months and spend some time in some college program and get out on parole. No big deal. So... Uh, I was arrested and and uh, booked into the Shawnee County Jail May 7th of 1999. And my federal sentence lasted 11 years, two months, and 13 days. So I found myself reborn into the world in January of 2010. Uh, there was a lot that happened in between. It was kind of this this decade where... I was in prison. Obviously, I was in federal prison. It was horrible because I was young. I was not tough. I was not a, a rugged convict. And I didn't really have any of the tools that the average scumbag that goes to jail kind of gets a hold of. And I realized just like one day too late that I really didn't want to be a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't want to be that guy that I like, I needed to find a different direction and, but I didn't really know anything else. So I went about trying to figure it out. Yeah. So you were in prison for more than a decade. Why was it so long? Does that feel like a long time to you? It was an incredible long time. Uh, some 4,000 days <laughs> and that's how it is. It's in prison. It's groundhog day. You get up and you do the exact same thing every day. If you're lucky or unlucky, it just depends on how you feel about it. So there was this odd transition period where I wasn't this notorious young criminal anymore, but I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, and I ended up having to, to figure it out myself because there aren't really, there's not really a lot of educational programs. There's not a lot of rehabilitation in prison these days in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's really just a warehouse for inmates and you sit there and 
you wake up and you go to bed and you cross off another day and 4,000 days in is, is an eternity when you're 19 years old. How did you feel when you first entered? So it was just kind of shell shocked. There was, I mean, I could tell you, you know, weird stories. Like the first day that I, that I showed up, it wasn't anything like I thought. I thought, you know, just what you'd see on TV, that they were going to roll the bars open and roll them shut. And you're going to be in this cell with a bed and a bunk. And that's not what it was at all. They shuffled me into this huge warehouse like room where there was bunks and bunks and bunks and lockers, and lockers, and lockers. And there was 26 people in this one room. And I crawled up into my corner bunk and got a book and tried to mind my own business. And there were people shooting heroin in the bunk next to me. And I realized that like, this isn't this incredibly structured environment. There's one correctional officer and 340 inmates on this housing unit. And for the most part, I was really on my own. And what was keeping me safe was the rule of law. Even there, right, among criminals, nobody wanted to get more time, catch a murder case, go, you know, people were still subject to discipline and that's what kept them straight. So they did otherwise anything they could get away with. And I thought that that was a terrible way to do business. So uh, I wanted to find, wanted to find some direction. So for me, it started out just being a, a physical direction. I went and found the weight pile where there was weights that I could lift. And I got into that because it seemed like a pretty safe thing where there's some camaraderie and where people were being positive and trying to do something positive, even if they were kind of meatheads. So I spent about six months doing weightlifting stuff and got kind of buff and that was a good time. And then I hurt my shoulder and I couldn't lift weights. I was just out of the game. And I found tennis and tennis became a passion for me. And that's where I met my very first sort of guru, physical guru, spiritual guru, like my first mentor. And seems like an odd place to, to find mentors in prison. He was from somewhere in the Middle East and he was a professional volleyball player Oh, from Lebanon. Uh, his name was Ellie and he was an incredible athlete. He spoke like nine languages. He was like 40 years old on his fourth knee surgery and he was just the best at everything. Had a great professional athletic training program and he was into Eastern philosophy and he hands me a book. And this was sort of the way that my life went for a decade. I would meet a person and I would be sort of in awe of their capabilities and I would go, man, how, how could I, how can I capture some of this essence? And they would go, oh, well, here's a book. So books were tremendously important to me. And the book that he gave me was uh, by a very controversial character called Osho. Uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who actually got run out of the United States in the 1970s for his crazy philosophies and crazy lifestyles. He's everywhere in India. Yeah. So he gives me this book and I read it and some of it just seems like complete gobbledygook, but uh, the book was called I Am That. And it led me to the first time that I'd ever asked myself the most important question that for me, as far as being able to make positive change, 
who am I and what kind of person do I want to be? And I realized like I was 20 years old and I'd never asked myself the question, who am I? And I'd never asked myself the question, what kind of person do I want to be? And my path was never going to go back to something destructive again. Because when you are faced with the question, what kind of person do you want to be? There's only one answer. You don't want to be a bad guy. You don't want to be a scumbag. You want to be a good person. And it forces you onto the path of going about, how do I do this? And it forces you onto the path of figuring out who you are. Mm -hmm. And most people just can go through their lives. Now there's so much distraction. Oh yeah. And one of my very favorite, now I'm going to plug my very favorite financial guru, Mr. Money Mustache, uh, who had a great article recently that was about not seeking distraction or not seeking to be entertained. So there's so much entertainment in the world now. You can play with your phone, you can watch TV. There's a million things to distract you from anything meaningful. And I find it much harder here in this world than it was in that world where there was so little distraction. Uh, I guess there was distraction, but it, it wasn't anything that I was interested in. And I was able to just focus and I was able to ask these questions and I was able to sit on a tennis court and watch the sunrise on a yoga mat and try to figure it out. Wow. What, what was your experience with spirituality or reading before you went into prison? None. I was, so I was, I was raised Jewish, raised by a good Jewish mom and, uh, had a bar mitzvah and went to Sunday school and four years even of, uh, Hebrew school and a whole year where we studied about the Holocaust. And I still feel kind of connected to the Jewish spirituality that I grew up with, but more because of the music and the ritual and just the comfort that it brought made me, making me think about being a kid. Cause I was oh, very serious and committed atheist. Uh, and I don't like to use the labels when it comes to spirituality. I don't ever say that I believe in God. Like most people talk about believing in God. I like to say that I believe in purpose, that I don't think that things happen by accident. And it's sort of a way for me to creep around spirituality because I feel like I'm very spiritual in my own way but I'm not spiritual in a conventional sort of fitting in way. Uh, you can't live the life that I have and not, and not feel a little bit spiritual. So the, my first real association between myself and any kind of meaningful spirituality was the Eastern philosophy. My second one was connecting with classic literature. The, a, a brilliant guy, his name was Ace, that was a total slacker. Uh, he was pretty young, I think he was under 25, and I never thought there was a single thing in his brain, let alone a cell, handed me a book called The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And I looked at it, 
And I just scoffed and I go, I've never read a book that was written before I was born. And I don't think that there could be any substance or meaning. Like, how could this book written in the 1800s relate to my life? How could I relate to it? How could it have any meaning? And he just looks at me and he goes, just read the book. Guy gave me a book and I fell in love with literature because it turns out that people have been loving and fighting and hating and dying and wanting as long as human experience has been alive. And that for thousands of years, the greatest masters have been able to distill human experience down and put it in words. And they end up in books like the brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And so I found this passion for reading old books and I went after as much of it as I possibly could. Uh, Imagine the 1500 page unabridged version of the Count of Monte Cristo where Edmund Dantes gets unlawfully, you know, he gets accused of something that he actually didn't do and thrown into prison because of a, a, a passion that, that I can't remember the details. It's been so long. I've read the book maybe in 2002 or 2003, which is today. This is 2018, but he gets imprisoned and he spends a long time in prison. I can totally relate to this guy, right? Because he doesn't just sit around eating, you know, gnawing on chicken bones and hating his life. He learns how to fight and fence and he finds a mentor and this mentor teaches him amazing things and then tells him where there's an enormous fortune buried. And that's a kind of a good metaphor for what happened to me too. Well, he gets out. He he actually escapes, right? He doesn't just wait on his date, right? This guy escapes Edmund Dantes and he ends up on a boat And there's this great part, and I'm not going to be able to quote it, but I'm going to paraphrase it, where he says, Dante's, when he was in prison, all he wanted was freedom with all of his heart and with all of his passion. Like, that's what he wanted. As soon as he escaped prison and had freedom, now he felt like he had to be rich because although a man or a person's resources are limited. Their desires are infinite. And that is pretty much a, a quote. Yeah. And I wrote it down in a notebook. I did a lot of journaling during that decade. And it just seemed like an amazing thing to consciously be aware of that there's a relationship between a person's resources and their ambition. Uh, and it's very interesting meeting different people that have different balances. Like for you, for example, you seem to have a pretty good balance between resources and ambition, at least as far as, as the, the measurement of happiness, where I always have more ambition than resources. And, you know, I've doubled my income several years in a row uh, in the last few years. And I've grown businesses and I've done, you know, we'll have, we'll have to talk about that a little in a little bit, yeah. but I've done lots of this stuff and improved my economic situation. I mean, I, I was released from prison in 2010. I had a green duffel bag with an AM FM Walkman, a couple of Tupperware bowls, a pair of sweatpants and 
a couple of good books that I loved. And that was all of my possessions. And I mean, fast forward, what is it? Eight years now. And we're sitting in my cluttered McMansion. Uh, so I found out though that no matter what I ended up having as far as physical possessions go, that I was always going to want more. And that was a learning that was really hard for me too, because I spent so much time in a place where resources were very scarce. I had almost nothing, but I had time. Mm -hmm. So I live in this switched around world now where I have a lot more resources, but I have no time. I've like time is such a, 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 a scarce commodity. So time for me now is always the constraint. And it must have been kind of prescient for me because in prison, I had almost nothing else, but I had lots of time. And I built myself into this opportunity machine where I could, I could sense when there was something that was an opportunity. And the, I mean, I guess it was really easy because just about the only opportunity I had was words on paper and time and whatever people happened to, you know, come in and out of the federal prison system who had interesting lives and could influence me in a positive way that knew stuff that I didn't. I mean, after you read a 300 year old book and get epiphanies from it, you kind of go, okay, where else? Like there, maybe there are other people and other places and other things that know stuff I don't. I mean, I guess it's fair to say I was also emerging from adolescence in this place. So I started this journey when I was 20 or 21 years old. And it was a good time for me to suddenly go, I'm not the only person that knows anything. And I was able to just really soak it in like a sponge. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you humbled yourself. And you utilize your your major resource, which was time, to to acquire wisdom and knowledge that you never had thought possible before. So in a way, you were very blessed to be in this situation. When did you start to to realize that yourself? Like right now, you you seem to reflect on this fondly to me. Like a, you have a smirk, like a smile, like as in this was a good time in my life. But when anyone hears that you spent ten years in prison, people are like, that's a worst case scenario. Why was that such a blessing for you? And, and when did you realize that? When did your mindset start to switch? Uh, yeah, so that was, it was a great, it, I can't say enough how awful prison is. And it's not awful because someone's burning you with hot irons or, you know, cutting your body all over the place. It's awful in a horrible, dragging, just never ending way. It's awful because it's long and it's forever mm -hmm. and you don't see your friends or your family or your hometown. You can't have a dog or a girlfriend or a phone call and you're not connected to anything. But in a way I probably kind of needed that. And I was not a grateful person growing up. I was a, like, I wasn't an awful spoiled child and certainly wasn't raised in a, in a wealthy family uh, situation, but we weren't completely poor either, but mm -hmm. I never had a sense of gratitude. I never, I was, it, I was always just 
unhappy with whatever I had and wanted more. So I kept the wanting more side, but there was a turning point somewhere in the process of learning that there was a world outside of me and realizing that I wasn't the center of the universe and finding a sense of gratitude. And I guess it was at, at some point I had learned enough that I turned the corner from the very worst state of knowing. So my, I had a, another great spiritual guru, Ante Lubas was his name. He was a Croatian arms dealer just finishing up a 30-year sentence. Oh he God. landed on the shores of the United States with a boat filled with weapons. And uh, so he spent a long time in prison. And Ante would talk about there being three kinds of knowing. The first kind is when you think you know, but you don't know. And that was me up until probably age 20 or 21, somewhere around that time when I you know, had my head up my butt and I thought I knew everything. And when you think you know, but you don't know, there's no opportunity for learning because you think that you know, like, why would you, why would you search for knowledge? Why would you search for meaning if you already know everything and you are the meaning? The second state of knowledge is knowing that you don't know. So I entered this period where, and I'm still there. The more I learn, the more I realize what I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's powerful knowing because it creates this sense of humility where you can, you can humble yourself and, and you can open yourself up to what other people can give you, to what other sources can give you. And that's good knowing. Right. And yeah, and it doesn't stop. So, Back to your purpose, how did how did that start to play a role in your life in prison? Like you, in a way, you like you mentioned, you kind of have to limit your ambitions because your resources are so low. So how are you able to live out your purpose on a day to day basis in a way that you know continually fed you and energized you to wake up the next day and seek more of it when there's so little rewards that you're yielding? Yeah, well, so I had I was really lucky because I had a date. I knew when I was going to go home. I actually met a guy who had been in prison since 1973 and I met him and I still, he was still in prison in not in 2007 and he had a life sentence and he would go before parole board every couple of years because he was actually a state prisoner, kind of a long story, but he was a state prisoner and he didn't have a date. And I don't know, no, there's a, there's a, a, a saying that I have, you do, you can do, as much time as you have to and no more, not a day more, but you find out, you know, I meet people that go, there's no way I could ever spend 10 years in prison. I go, it's really easy. You wake up every morning and you're in prison and you get tired at night and you go to bed and you're in prison. And just like that, you walk down a decade. And if I would have not had a date when I was going to be free, I don't know how that would have worked because I'm still a pretty time-oriented guy. But I did have a date. So I set that date, even though it seemed really way off in the distance. I have nine and a half years when I started to have a little bit of an awakening. Mm -hmm. But I realized that this time that I was going to have 
was going to run out and that I was going to need to get out and prove myself because I still felt like I, I guess I got this idea that I did have some talents and I did have some knowledge and I was growing and that after taking so much from the world and as a kid that I felt like I was going to need to repay kind of a debt of honor for a world that allowed me to become something better that I, that I owed something. And it's kind of just the opposite of the entitled attitude that a lot that gets you into criminal mischief. So it was the not entitled attitude that got me out of criminal mischief that made me go, I need to tune myself up and make myself into this awesome machine. Because when I get out of prison, I'm going to be 30 years old. I'm going to still have a ninth grade education in quotes, right? Because I don't have any, I didn't have a college degree. I had a GED. I'm going to have a felony record and I'm going to have no job history. And I'm going to have to go out and fight the good fight and try to make a positive impact on the world. And these are going to be the things that people are going to see on a job application that people are going to meet me and go, so tell me about yourself, Joe. And I'm going to go, well, according to what you can see on paper, here's, there's not a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. How did but, you start to embrace this story then? Well, storylines with you. I didn't have any, I didn't have any choice. Right. So what I could do is I could work on improving myself. I could make me a better person and tick tock. I only had nine and a half years to do it. So every single day mattered because there was millions of pages of classic literature. There was tons of philosophy books. There was a million different kinds of, of sports and physical activities I could do to improve my body. Spirituality came so hard to me, meditating so hard to me. I got into yoga and I realized that I could do yoga two hours a day, three days, four days a week, and that my body was just going to make me be patient with it. And being in prison, waking up and being in prison, going to bed, you either get patient or you go crazy. So I found a balance between patience and ambition. But every day that there was always this urgency that this time was running out. And the time between theoretically being a person who is going to get released and go do great things and it actually being proving time, put up or shut up, like that time was narrowing every day. So I felt that I felt the drive and yeah, and I had a date. So my, my purpose, my reason for doing what I did was that my time was running out. And it's so funny because, you know, I turned this awful obstacle again into an opportunity instead of being horribly downtrodden about the months and years that I had ahead of me in prison. It just became a stopwatch that was counting down and it created urgency for me to live every day because it was still my life. Uh, a great thing that I, that I kind of figured out was that the whole world is a prison, that everybody's limited by resources, everybody's limited by time. We're all going to die. None of us can escape Earth. So the only thing that's left is figuring out what 
is available to you and seizing what's inside of your circle. Uh, another, I can't call him a guru. He was just a nutty Jamaican guy that I worked out with and I worked out with him and I just thought he was going to kill me. I thought he was actually trying to kill me. And one day he saw me reading this Osho philosophy book and he goes, I got a book for you. I won't, I won't kill you with my Jamaican accent. And he hands me a book called Enchiridion by Epictetus, who is a, a Stoic philosopher. And Stoicism, it turns out, is the really long-winded version of the serenity prayer, which is, grant me the serenity, accept the things I cannot change. So Stoicism was all about looking outside of yourself and going, all of this stuff outside of me, I can't, I don't have any influence over. I can't change the weather. I can't change politics. I can't change what other people are going to do, what they're going to say. What I do have control over, right? The courage to change the things I can. Second part of the serenity prayer. What I do have, have complete control over is how I feel about things, how I approach them and what my attitude is and what I do and how I react to my environment. Yes. And the current or wait, the wisdom to know the difference. So stoicism was this big philosophy that can be narrowed down into three lines and used in self-help programs. And nobody really gets it, but that's what it is. It's, it's the wisdom to know the difference. Like what's the, what's the, what's the, the line drawn between what I can change and what I can't. And when you realize that almost everything is outside your sphere of influence, and it's so hard for people like humans, we struggle with wanting to grab a hold of everything and change everything outside mm -hmm. of ourselves. We want to focus on everything that there's nothing we can do about. And it's, it's so painful. But in my world, I had to stand up for count. Like they counted us in prison every couple of hours. And I had to stand up for count at 4, at 4 p.m. every day. And I had to be in my cell and I had to go to places at a certain time. And I, I just did this enough days in a row where I, I finally, it just occurred to me that there's very little that I have control over, but inside of my sphere of influence, how I felt about and what I was, what I was doing, what I was thinking and, and the way that my energy was moving, I had complete control over. And suddenly I became a free man in prison, completely free to do whatever I wanted inside of my available options. If you can find happiness and freedom in prison, you can find it anywhere. And happiness to me is a thing that, that starts inside of you and radiates outward. It has to be because I lived in some of the worst environments you possibly imagine. What were those environments? Just, I mean, I spent my teenage years in awful drug trafficking circles, but just prison environments. I mean, I wasn't in horrible, awful, terrible prisons where people were getting stabbed and murdered for the most part. Uh, there were some, there were some rough times, but for the most part, I, you know, that wasn't my experience, but prison's an awful environment and finding your way and finding happiness and finding peace and finding freedom in a place where they shoot you if you touch the fence. 
it was a it was an amazing experience for me. Yeah, that's such a contradiction. So, how are you able to live so, you know, free spirited? Like when there's all these like tough, rough people around you that might be judging you pretty harshly for being what they want to be. How was that a difficult aspect of living that way? It was really easy. Uh, it was because I was kind. Of, I found myself to be a kind of polarizing person. You mostly people just would ignore me. Didn't really. Uh, understand, I I ended up having very little daily contact with a lot of the inmate population because they were focused on their outside environments. They were trying to write letters and make phone calls, and they were trying to to hold on to romances that were long dead because the choices that they'd made. They were trying to influence their family. They were fighting over the limited prison resources of food and cigarettes and positions in front of the TV and just this petty, awful stuff that I couldn't understand at all. And I didn't care anything about it. And I found though that people who sort of were, were naturally leader oriented, uh, I connected with a lot, not because I was really a leader. Cause I really, especially there, I wasn't, didn't have any kind of a leadership position, but because Leadership oriented people tend to make up their own mind about stuff while other people tend to be driven by public opinion. Hmm. So people who were curious and wanted to make up their own mind, wanted to, to learn things from themselves, tended to get curious about me because I lived a very strange life for a prisoner. Uh, and I wasn't, I just, I didn't have the, you're doing yoga and meditating and walking around with a smile and yeah, well, there were people that did that books, but I just, yeah, like there were people that did yoga and people that were like people that did all the stuff that I did, but they didn't seem to be getting the outcomes that I was getting. Uh, how do you measure your outcomes? Yeah. I mean, I measured it by. maximum possible happiness and maximum utilization of available resources and finding a way to salute the sun metaphorically speaking. <laughs> uh, although, I mean, plenty of days when, when I would physically go out and I found myself going, who gets to come out? in the morning and unroll a yoga mat on an empty tennis court and salute the sun in a warm Texas summer. And the answer is very few people. Everyone was just caught up in life. I knew that because I was 500 miles away and they were all ignoring me because it was like, I didn't exist. I had just dropped into this other universe because yeah, in, that's amazing. When you're in prison, people don't really, you know, they, they, you drop out of life. You don't ever see them. You don't have any business with them. You don't really have any reason to talk to them. So you end up very, I ended up very isolated for the most part. And so you make that your world. Yeah. So you reframed and you decided that you have a very choice filled existence in there. Um, you were probably able to amass a, a big network of people that, that had a lot of mentorship to give you. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, it was, it was amazing. So I, uh, I was, I was able to meet some of the most incredible people because they happened to be walking, uh, 
Were they living purposefully then, would you say? I don't know. I mean, I'd say that most of them were, they were different. They were, they were people who had, a lot of them had very successful lives and they wound up getting on the wrong side of the law and they didn't really seem to understand that they had done anything illegal or wrong. And they, so they felt very wrong by the system and, and so they, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting scenario with them, but they mostly were, they they felt like they had already figured out their way where I was living a life where I never, like I, I prided myself on never thinking that I knew anything and <laughs> every so yeah, change. It was always fluid. It was, I was always ready and I still do this thing that, that, that people struggle with so much is finding new evidence and changing. It's a scientific method thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you find new evidence, you have to go back and reevaluate your premises. And I find myself like, I always do that, uh, in, in, as a planner by nature, I'm kind of a planning guy and I ended up in, uh, in manufacturing supply chain, being a production planner and a, a flow specialist in my corporate career. And in that role, it was all, it was always about the, the managing of variation, the, the narrowing of, of possible futures into likely futures. But it was also about being able to understand what you didn't know. Yeah. So when you got out, did you feel like there was there was a lot of parallels between prison life and society life, or was were people just fundamentally different? What what was able to transfer over? Maybe what wasn't so much. Well, so among other things, I studied a lot of education and intelligence and communication theories. I read a lot of books about it and it was so weird how I found all of them, but I would read a book and it would have references to another book. So I studied multiple intelligence theory, uh, read Howard Gardner's book and Daniel Goleman's emotional and social intelligence books. And I read both of those. Yeah, no, they're great. So they're great, great books. And I actually read, I think the guy's name is Neil Strauss. He wrote a book about the, uh, the, some international secret society of pickup artists. And in it, he ran into a practitioner of, of a, a, a debunked pseudoscience called neuro-linguistic programming. And so I looked it up and got all the books and read them all. And it was fascinating because their, their pseudoscience uh, is now something that's practiced very regularly and psychology is all about reframing and they had these presuppositions like if one person can do something another person can learn how to do it they were modelers Whoa, yeah. so what they did was they found somebody like milton h erickson the father of modern clinical hypnosis and this guy had the natural raw talent to hypnotize people and he could do it in a million different ways he was amazing but he really didn't know what he did and he was he wouldn't have really been able to teach you probably how to do it but these guys went and decontextualized and took his talent and broke it down into steps 
so that it could be taught to anybody. And their premise was that anybody can do that, that anybody can, can create a model from talent, but oh, there's so, there's so much more to it. Uh, so the, the, one of the things that I took with me was my skill with communicating with people on their level. Uh, a lot of it's just nonverbal communication and understanding people's emotions and and paying attention and getting feedback because the whole the whole thing about ninety plus percent of communication isn't words. It makes a lot of sense to me. I won't say it's true because I don't really like you. Got to understand about me. I don't really believe in truth. Um, I don't. And the NLP guys, it was the same thing. They were never about truth. They said, it doesn't matter if this is true. The question is, is it useful in achieving an outcome? So they were very, very pragmatical. They were very practical people. And their model is a very practical model. It was not a, it was not a search for truth. It was a search for a model that could be useful. It was a search for finding a lever to move something heavier than what you could move with your own hands. And it was really a, a way for me to find a way through the path of the, a pathway of people because the, the tools are all there, like connecting with people. And, and, and as, so as a kid, I was awful manipulator and manipulating is this kind of evil thing. And now I don't call myself a manipulator. I'm an influencer. And <laughs> it sounds like kind of a, kind of a, 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 a BS way to, to say the same thing, but it's not manipulating is getting someone to do something against their own rational self-interest where influence and leadership is getting somebody to do something that they may not have done on their own without your influence, but something that's in their rational self-interest. Now the truth is somewhere in the middle about what exactly that is. I mean, if it's about selling them a bigger, better, nicer car, I don't know how much of that's influence and how much is, is manipulation, but ethically I always try to keep myself on the side of if I'm communicating with a person and trying to have influence, I'm trying to do it by leading and teaching and, and showing available options mm-hmm. and not by telling people, this is how it is. You have to believe me because it's like the, you know, teaching someone to fish versus giving them a fish. Like if you give someone a conclusion, then they need you from now on for their conclusions, but helping people see different options and, and helping people think now that's a, that's a useful tool. That's something that people can take off with them. So my transition out of prison, it was amazing because one day I was in prison And the next day I was in the Atlanta International Airport and there was a million people buzzing around and the whole world was open to me again. But then I had to go to a halfway house. I had to get a job. And in the same way, my my actions were in so many ways restricted by available futures that made sense. Because the world where I just booked it out of there and went to New York City I would just get arrested and sent back to prison, right? So we all, we get to make our choices, but I was very aware of how my, how my choices would influence 
what happened in the world. So again, I was still very restricted in what I could do. And again, I, I, I brought myself back to, okay, what are my available options and what can I do? And what are the options that I'm not seeing? And the halfway house required me to work. So I got a job and got another job and got a better job and got a better job because that was what I could do. Like that was what I could influence. That was the piece of my life that the, the controls around me were saying, go do this. It was a direction that was just, it was directionally open to me. So what's open to me and what can I do with it? Instead of, man, I really want to go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger and these dang people at the halfway house won't let me leave. Like, what can I do? So the attitude and the spirit that I had that I built into myself in prison where I was so restricted, it just followed me right out into the world where I became progressively less and less and less restrictive, but I was more restrictive on myself and on my directions and the, the places that I wanted to go. Yeah. So that's very cool how you, you had such self-control to be able to know that you can live a more purpose-filled life in line with like who you are if you restrict yourself within the unlimited freedoms because there are many ways you could orient yourself, but you chose a path that was very narrow and very intentional, it seems. What was the underlying purpose that, that you kind of mentioned earlier? You didn't believe in God, but you believe in purpose. What is that for you? So for me, I'm now a very people-oriented person. So... Everybody has different talents, and I felt like I didn't have a lot of talent when I was a kid. I couldn't dance, and I wasn't good with crafts, and I couldn't do art. I couldn't draw. I just felt I felt like I never really found my niche. It was probably why I just got off into trouble. But it turns out that my talent, what I'm good at, is communicating. So... When I didn't have, you know, as a youngster, I didn't have a whole hell of a lot to offer as far as what I could communicate, what value I could could give to the world. So I, like I talked about earlier, feeling like I needed to give something back. So I still feel like that. And I feel like everything that I've run across my whole life has collected inside of me and made it so that I can give something to everybody in my life if I can. And we talked about it yesterday about the different kinds of giving, the different kinds of, you know, because I'm not, I, I don't see myself as an altruist. I don't want you to get the wrong impression of me. I was, uh, one of my favorite sets of books was the Ayn Rand Objectivist, mm -hmm. uh, the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. This is, you're and, like naming my, my like home like bookshelf right now. Right. So the, like the, the virtue of selfishness, right? Yeah. And the, so the virtue of selfishness for me isn't about depriving other people of things. It's about this, this, about everything that you can build for other people starting inside of yourself and about being honest with my motivations. And the honest truth is that even if I'm just doing something for someone else and it makes me happy, I'm doing it because it makes me happy because I don't have any idea what's happening in the other person's world. I can see how they react. I can 
conceptualize how fixing up a house and making a nicer house so that somebody can live in it will make somebody's life better. But I'm really doing it for my own intents and purposes and I'm doing it for my own selfish reasons. And that's kind of a check on myself. It's part of part of the way that I live. It has to, I have to have a good selfish reason for stuff. But so don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not altruism. It's, it's the idea that two kinds of giving, there's the kind where I've got two bucks and a cheeseburger's two bucks and you're hungry and I'm hungry. And so I can give you the two bucks or I can buy you a cheeseburger and you can eat it and you're good now, but I'm hungry. And I don't believe in that kind of selflessness because how do you, how do I keep your fire lit when mine goes out? And I don't believe that that's a useful kind of selflessness. And this is just, this is just me, my personal feeling and, and what drives me. But the other kind of giving is having a lit candle and I can use it to light your candle without taking any light from mine. So my lit candle and your lit candle from one candle, now there's two and there's double the light and I haven't lost anything. Mm -hmm. And then we can go off and if I can infect you with the enthusiasm for lighting candles in any way, and I mean, it can be in big ways, go change the world, or it can be in very small ways, just having a conversation with someone and leaving an impression and maybe they'll feel different about convicts. They'll feel different about Jews. They'll feel different about real estate investors. They'll feel different about whatever the heck it is we're talking about and take that with them and have a positive impression or just have a, have a good feeling for five minutes. It's something I can do for someone else without taking anything from me and maybe it'll spread. I feel like I was uniquely blessed with the opportunity to figure out how to increase the, um, the number of available options that I see. And that if there's anything that I could do for other people that's valuable, because I still can't dance and I'm never going to paint a great work of art. And... So there's a lot of things that I see other people do. I'm never going to be a professional tennis player or a great uh, rock climber, but I can influence people and I can meet them one-on-one -on -one or in a group or, or write something on social media or sit in front of you and we can talk on a podcast and I can hopefully communicate the, the concepts that got me to wake up. I can help other people to do that. And I can do it by doing something I love, which is talking. And that after years of doing it, I feel like I'm pretty good at letting hot air come out and making the right sounds and, and finding a way to communicate these things and infect people with enthusiasm. And some people just totally miss it which is okay because I'm still enjoying it. I'm still getting what I want out of it. Right. But if there's a, if there's a thing that I can do, if there's a, if there's a purpose and I believe strongly in it, it's creating value and utilizing whatever talents you have 
to give to the world more than you take, which is a very objectivist Ayn Rand sort of philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Giving to the world, creating more value than you take. And it's a very strong feeling for me. And so I had, and I had to figure out how to do it. So doing it through communicating and through kind of trying to package up the things that I, that I believe in the things that I've thought about into meaningful and fairly concise packages. So like the idea of behind the idea about increasing people's available options, spent a lot of time around criminals and they never seemed to understand why they did what they were doing. And we talked yesterday about my rational world theory that I, I believe that I don't believe people for the most part, there's obviously mentally ill people, but most people aren't crazy and they're not stupid. And when they make crazy or stupid decisions, they're, they're not just being crazy or stupid that I believe that everyone makes the best decision based upon their rational self-interest and that they choose the best option they can of what they see as their available options. Mm -hmm. So lots of people don't see very many available options. You know, we talked yesterday and we talked about the, uh, the idea of somebody who feels like they, uh, are, you know, they're hungry or they don't have anything and they're either going to starve or they're going to rob a bank. Mm -hmm. And they see those as their two available options. And if you only see those two possibilities, then it's completely rational to rob a bank because that's where the money is. And if you don't have any, if you're hungry, if you're, if you feel like you're in need, if you feel like you're entitled to it, then it becomes a very rational option. And so we find ourselves rationalizing these things and I believe that the more available options people can see, the better decisions they'll make. Yeah. So my direction when I run into people that seem like they're in trouble uh, and I find myself being in this sort of counseling, coaching, mentoring position a lot with people because I've been able to go from being very not successful to being pretty successful, all things considered, uh, depending on how you measure success. And people see me and they go, I have a problem. Tell me about it. And it, maybe it's not even, I, I don't even think that it had to, I think that the same thing happened when I was in prison. I think I'm just a conduit for this. And, and, you know, we talk, we're talking about purpose, like this is my purpose and I see it. So when somebody comes to me, I stop and I take some time and that's what I want to talk about. Now I want to talk about do you, you know, what do you see as your options here? And then I try to give them just crazy stuff, just off the wall, things that they haven't seen and go, look, you don't have two options. You have a hundred options. What my two favorite games uh, are chess and no limit Texas Hold'em. And you learn a lot about me from understanding that because chess is a game with an incalculable almost number of available options. Uh, I guess it is calculable. Somebody's probably done the math on it, but I'm not one of those that's that great at math, but it's very strategic and it's very meaningful and it's very methodical. And you can, you can play ahead in your brain 
But again, you're, you're, you're planning, you're looking for the path forward, but you're, you don't know, you have to anticipate what's happening outside of you, your opponent's moves, your, your, what's going to, what's going to happen that you're not going to be able to make the choices about. And you look at all the possible moves and you can, if you're a good chess player and the better you are, the better you get at doing this, you narrow it down to a few most likely scenarios for the next move. And then you play your next move. And then if you're really good, then you're thinking, okay, if I do this, he's going to do this. I'm going to do this. And you get, you know, several moves ahead. And the, so in my other, you know, my other favorite game is, uh, is no limit Texas Hold'em. Uh, funny story. I, I, at the last place that I was at, uh, I wanted to learn about poker. I had a lot of available time. So I ended up running a poker table for the Mexican mafia, uh, because they were the ones that ran the poker table. And it gave me a little bit of, of extra security because, uh, I made the money by playing poker. So I was an asset to them. I was useful and it got me, I got to play poker 50 hours a week for free for nine months. Was this in prison? Yeah. Yeah. So I ran this poker table. So I played no limit Texas Hold'em like 70 hours a week for nine months and uh, played an awful lot of hands and kind of, I never, I didn't do a ton of studying, but I learned a little bit about it. And, and poker is statistics. It's, it's going, okay, you know, what's the likelihood of me making this hand? I've got a gut shot Jack and I've got a one in 17 chance of making it. Right. But it's also strategic. And it's also saying it's, it's where chess, there's no gambling. There's just the limit of your ability to calculate. Where poker, there is risk and there is gambling, but not blindly if you're doing it correctly. You're looking at it and going, I have a 1 in 17 chance of, of this, gut, this gut shot jack happening. But the pot is paying me 50 to 1 odds. So my odds in the pot are 3 to 1 to the 1 in 17 chance I have. So this is actually, this is a good bet. Because even though I only have a 17% chance or whatever, uh, you know, whatever the chance, a 7% chance of catching up and winning this hand, the pot's paying so much that it makes sense to do. Because there's not always in, in life, you don't always have a cut and dry, like this is the right decision, this is the wrong decision. Playing poker is such a great metaphor for navigating through life because in those times, you just... Like, how can I do the most good and the least evil? And that goes through my head all the time. Like, that's what I want to do because you're never going to be perfect. You're going to hurt people. Right. Like, then it's 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 hard to, to know that and to want to be a good person and know that you're going to go through life. You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to burn bridges. You're going to hurt people. And it's and you're not going to always do good. And you're not going to always do right by people. But the most good and the least evil. Uh, so yeah, so I've kind of got off on it. So yeah, so those are amazing metaphors, I think as well. Um, so how does your purpose manifest itself in, in what you've been doing professionally? You, you, you seem to indicate you have a career that you have right. several businesses. Could you maybe rattle some of that off? Yeah. So I was the, I was a 
unlikely candidate for my life. When I, I, I spent a lot of time, we didn't talk about it in prison, but I spent a lot of time in prison studying business. And I wasn't just head in the clouds doing yoga. I did that for a while. I was just crazy out there on the spiritual journey, which seems kind of weird for me because I'm a pretty practical guy. But I spent a lot of time studying business. And I, I, I just knew that I would not, as a you know ninth grade high school dropout, convicted felon with no job history and really nothing, no education, nothing going for me, that I would not get the good corporate job that would make a good salary that would be the base for me to be able to be economically secure. So I just knew that I was going to have to be an entrepreneur. I was going to have to start a business, own a business, like work for myself because no company in their right mind would hire some Yahoo like me. Like if you see me on a job application, right. the top of your head is just going to blow off. So I knew I had to do something. And so I read a million books on business and I, and, and I studied, 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 and I subscribed to like 26 different magazines. And I decided real estate was the way to go. And I decided primary markets were the way to go. Primary markets being things people need, housing, cars, food, anything like that things that aren't going to get laid off of the budget when things get tight. Uh, I mean, I was exiting prison during the worst financial and real estate crisis in 30 years. So I knew that I wanted to, to have a real estate business. I knew that, I, but it you know takes money to do that. And oddly enough, uh, so a couple of things. The first thing is i I didn't know anything about fixing houses. I was raised by a single mom who sold Mary Kay and I'd never touched a hammer in my whole life. And, but I, I believed that if somebody else could do something, I could learn it. And mm -hmm. I believe it so strongly. So I started buying tools and got materials. And I was, I was fortunate enough that, uh, my mom, who's always loved me and always been by my side and had my back, uh, helped me in the beginning to get a to get a house. And I got a house and I started working on projects because the house was a, a foreclosure in a cool old house neighborhood that I bought for 40 cents on a dollar. And fast forward seven years and I'm just I have a, an apartment, 24 unit apartment complex under contract that uh, I've done an 18 month flip on where I bought the apartment complex in this horribly distressed condition where there were six vacancies, seven squatters and 11 paying tenants when I took it over. And I doubled the amount of money that's coming out of it and quadrupled the number of dollars of security deposits. And that's great. That's great metrics financially. But the other thing that I did was I took a apartment, an apartment complex in a neighborhood that was that has an average forty percent vacancy rate because no one gives a crap about their tenants. Like landlords, they see they they manage by a spreadsheet, and I care about humans. Like it matters to me that there's people living in this place, and I wanted to make money while also giving back and doing good. And so, purpose, right? I'm always aligning what I'm doing to that purpose and, and trying to make money and live in this capitalist life while also staying honest with myself about trying to do it in a people centric way. So 
I uh, went in and we remodeled just uh, just over half of the 24 units and made them really nice. And people said, you're wasting your money. They're just going to go in and screw it up because that's what those scumbag low income tenants do. And you know what? It's not true. It was very polarizing. Uh, I, I, I did lots of tours and people would walk into my apartments and the people that I knew didn't have a good intentions. They just they would walk in and they would go, man, this place, it's kind of too nice for me. And they would leave. And they're the nicer, better, the higher quality, if you want to call it low income tenants. Like there are a lot of people who don't make a lot of money, but they're not bad people. They're not scumbags. They're not, you know, they're not just going to consume your apartment. And the way that I made money was by investing money into this place and making a better place and better people came. And in 2017, I had a waiting list to get into this apartment complex. And so I'm able now to turn it over to another local guy and sell it and make money off of it. Uh, at this time, I think I own nine condos, seven or eight houses in this 24 unit apartment complex between me and, uh, and the, the family trust manage a pretty wicked real estate portfolio for a guy who managed a green duffel bag eight years ago. Wow. Uh, I, uh, I, I bought a house every two years for myself and lived in it and fixed it up. And so we're sitting in my third house that I bought and fixed up and now I'm getting out of. So I've moved a lot and I really hate moving, but it's been, this is like, it's the, the feeling of discomfort. And we're going to come all the way back around to me feeling uncomfortable because I'm living in a, a completely different place now. And so I sold my last house and I bought it for $89,000 and sold it for 159. And I took some of that money and I, one of my tenants was this super talented young guy. He was like 21 years old at the time, I think, but he moved into the place and tore this race car apart and was rebuilding it. I was like, man, this guy's talented, man. I love cars. Cars are a primary market. And we talked and he was like, yeah, I just hate the way that car businesses are. They're always trying to screw people over and they're not honest. And wouldn't it be nice to have a car business where we could take care of people and make money and also not screw people and not charge exorbitant fees? And, and what would that look like? And I'm like, I know what it'd look like. I just need to find some real estate. So I know the real estate game and I've found a piece of property and was able to buy it with very little money down and have the seller finance it. And we started a business called Car Lounge uh, here in Topeka. So I have I now am the 50% co-owner because I brought my partner, this 21-year-old guy in, and uh, I just like I, I, I recognized talent and I knew that he was just going to be amazing and that I needed to capture him and his talent and and use it to be a conduit for doing good stuff. Yeah. And at the ripe old age of 23, uh, my business partner, Connor retired from his job doing it to run his own business full time. So I'm a, I'm the, uh, the 50% owner, founder, partner of, uh, the car lounge here in Topeka, where we sell cars at ridiculously low prices because all we want to do is make a little money and stay in business. And Connor, uh, we have three full-time employees and we fix cars and we do it in a, in a way that 
that we get to do it ethically and and is it almost like a nonprofit then? No, not at all. No, we still like there's still definitely it's a for-profit business. We're doing it for our own selfish reasons, but our model is to create value and use that value proposition as a way to build a business instead of using fancy marketing or uh, influence schemes or there's lots of, you know, I've read the, I read the book, uh, influence the psychology of persuasion by Robert Cialdini, fascinating stuff. The way that humans are sort of hardwired to be influenceable by turning levers. And the more I learned about influence like that, the more I realized that I didn't want to do that. Like I, that doesn't, it didn't seem honest to me. It didn't seem ethical to me. So we both aligned on this philosophy uh, if you build it, they will come that like people will value a good service at a good price. So our, our motto was that our philosophy was uh, our marketing philosophy was to be the best car business that nobody had ever heard of. We, we set a marketing budget of $0. We open up the doors and now the car lounge is booked two weeks out, three weeks out sometimes, uh, for, for people who want mechanic work done. So I ended up a a sort of serial entrepreneur and now I'm looking at multiple new businesses, other ventures that I want to start. So in seven or eight years, I, and I also, uh, uh, I got a job as a fork truck driver at this huge manufacturing company. And after nine months, some guy from the front office walked down and had a conversation with me on while I was on the fork truck. And he's like, what are you doing down here riding a fork truck? And I'm like, hey, bud, I just had a kid. You guys have great health insurance. So that's what I'm doing. And a relationship that I built with this guy uh, ended up getting me in a position where the, the production control manager of this uh, huge factory, 69-acre, billion-dollar factory in Topeka, um, went to the plant manager and said, I want to hire this guy. He's talented. He's the right guy. And You're the fork tri- forklift driver. That's, that's not right. who they typically hire. <laughs> no, not, not, not for, for jobs that basically production planning is managing this immense complexity in this huge factory where everything has to be, you have to order all the perfect amount of everything throughout the process because the average age limit of this stuff is like seven days. And so if you don't make enough, then you shut production down and you can imagine like a hundred people standing around doing nothing and getting paid 25 bucks an hour for it and shoot, you're in trouble. And if you make too much of it, then you throw away a hundred thousand dollars of material or some enormous outrageous, like two times your annual salary kind of amount of stuff. And you can screw up either way every single day. (laughs) So I don't have much of a pedigree. I think we've sort of established that. Right. And I came with a little bit of baggage and it got to the point where uh, the guy who hired me, the production control manager went to the plant manager and said, I'm a manager and I get to hire my own people. And if you don't let me make a hiring decision, I quit. And he went to bat for you like that. I had built this relationship with this human, with this person. 
and, and found a way to communicate that I had value and I got hired into a salary position in a fortune 200 company. And it was right around the time that my picture came out on the front page of the Topeka Capital Journal uh, in an article that was talking about my criminal history. It was very strategic because I didn't want the company to be able to go back and go, we didn't know this about you. Uh, I had disclosed that I was a felon and I just wanted to, like, I've always wanted to get out in front of that stuff. But on the other side of it, once I got hired, I went and killed it for the company. Like, I felt like I had something to prove. Like, I, I owed this debt of honor to this guy, and he was an amazing mentor for me, and, and I learned so much about leadership. And I've, I have learned over the years that when an opportunity presents itself to learn from somebody who has a talent, not to, not to sniff at that. So I worked lots of long hours, and the next two promotions that I got as a salary person came really easily because I had, I had been taken over the, over the threshold by this guy who believed in me and went to bat for me and put his own job on the line and got me hired. And uh, the last position that I held before I started working toward a, a, a life where I had less responsibility in corporate America uh, I was the, a, a, a project manager and I managed projects all over this plant and I had tons of responsibility and the whole phone calls with the director of materials in corporate America. And, uh, and so that job that I told you was going to be impossible for me to get. That's my career path. Now I have a good corporate job. So while I was accidentally stumbling into the good corporate job. I was building a real estate business. I was continuing my side economic plan. Uh, and, and it, so it's, it's worked out for me and I, I have this, this strange life where, uh, I've gotten economically more comfortable, but it's allowed me to, to, focus more on changing my, changing my focus. Uh, for a long time, my focus was just on getting through the day and working on houses. I would, you know, work my corporate job and then I would get off work and I would go learn to sweat copper or lay hardwood floors or put in windows or do all of the stuff that I, you know, my mom probably told, would have told me that I would have never, uh, been able to figure out. Not, not really. She was always really encouraging. Um, I get it. That's not your forte at all. No, well, so, but it became my forte. I figured out how to do it. I started, I, you know, started a car business and my business partner showed me how to work on cars. I, had, I had, haven't had time to get super into that, but uh, I, I suddenly found that I was successful enough that I could not stop trying to make money, but that I could change the frame of what I wanted to do. So mm -hmm. I still want to make money doing real estate. I still want to make money in doing the car business. I want to make money doing other businesses, but my focus has now changed toward how can I use this lucky, stupid life that's happened to me where I have, I have so much more 
than I could have ever hoped for. And I think that's, you know, that's an important part of, of living a, a deliberate life of not living an unexamined life, always re-examining your premises is mm-hmm. that I was able to, to see this, that I like, I have a lucky life. And if you just, you know, read a short bio about me, you would go, this is not a guy who's had a lucky life, but I have, I have had more opportunity than I could ever hope for. And the idea that I still have things to teach and I still have things to learn and that there are other people out there who can teach me and other people out there who can learn from me. It motivates me every day. Like there's, so there's this, there's this fire, right? And, uh, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a single candle. I'm like, uh, like a, Hey, I'm Jewish. I'm like a menorah. I was about to say that. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So there's this one lit candle in the middle. Right. But I remember, I remember a story that my mom told me when she was a, when she, when I was a kid about the difference between heaven and hell that, you, that the, you know, they walked into hell and everybody's at this big table and there was all this food on the table and the people couldn't bend their arms. And so they were scooping up food and they were just struggling, trying to get the food in their own mouths and they just couldn't do it. And so they were all starving to death and that was hell. And then, okay, great. What's heaven? And they walked into a room. It was the exact same room in the exact same situation and people that couldn't and they were using their straight arms to feed each other. And I know that there's this light that I have that I can use to light up other people's lives. But in the same way, I need these people and I need to be connected to them and I need to keep going because for every light that I get lit, there's a hundred more that I can see out there that are candles in my life that aren't lit. And if I light a hundred more of them, I'll see a thousand more. And if I light a thousand of them, I'll see a million more and that it never stops. So why would you ever stop? Wow, that's super powerful. That is such a direct image of your purpose. And yeah, that, that, that probably makes it very easy to stay aligned to your purpose when you just have this clear image that you just described to me. It's yeah, and it's beautiful. interesting. Very visual, right? Yeah. And everybody's not visual, but I am. And, and communicating something, especially using metaphors and visual stuff is, is super important, but... Uh, but that's like, that's being able to, to, to pass on meaning. It's what words are for. And yeah. And I've been, I've like, I've had this, this super fortunate life where the more I go through, it's funny how it works in, in the world. When I had a green duffel bag strapped to my back, Nobody was like going, Hey dude, let me tell you about your life. Like, I want to know how you did it. Like how you did what? 
But the, so the further I go and I like would only have made it to where I am because of all of the people that have lit my way and all of the things that instead of ignoring, I've paid attention to that have made it to the point where it's easier for me to, to, to communicate this message of lighting up the darkness. Yeah. And I don't see it as an accident at all. I see it as a responsibility. And that's what it is. Like, I guess people have lots of lofty spiritual stuff in their brain and mind's very practical. I need to connect with people in this world. Maybe there's more out there, but I have enough work to do right here that I'll be able to keep doing it and never get to the end. Shalom. Namaste. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a great opportunity to have the, uh, the long end of this conversation. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing what, what you're going to do and where you're going. It'll be a great opportunity. Thanks. Thank you. So what actionable step are you going to take next? Do you have a lingering question or something you want help working through? Do you need support in doing what it's going to take to live your purpose? People of Purpose is here for you. Subscribe to the podcast and soak in the stories and words of our wonderful guests. Do you have any friends that might enjoy this episode or the podcast? Bring them on board as a podcast subscriber. If you want to actually see the guests behind the voices, as well as the purposeful people and communities I'm a part of around the world, Follow the podcasting journey on Instagram at People of Purpose Podcast. You can connect with our purpose-seeking community on Facebook at People of Purpose by liking and following our page. Know the minute each new episode is published, hear first about upcoming People of Purpose opportunities, and receive regular tidbits of inspiration and media I'm purposely perusing, pursuing, and pondering. It's simply a regular dose of goodness, intentionally filtered by me, to nourish your personal path of purpose. For the ultimate engagement, Join our intentional group, Purpose Seekers, from the Facebook page. Join in longer-form discussions, link up with accountability partners, and share in opportunities and challenges to better know and grow in your purpose. Send me a direct message on either Facebook or Instagram if you want to talk privately and receive personalized guidance on how to raise your sales and write your ship. Come forth with your biggest dreams and aspirations, and I will do my best to connect you with the necessary resources and mentors from my network to start your trek along your personal path of purpose. Cheers, and here's to becoming... Hello, it's your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Thank you so much for an amazing 2017. In 2017, we published 11 episodes and surpassed 1,000 downloads. I heard numerous stories about how listening to the podcast has really energized you and engaged you with your purpose. And I've been fortunate to help guide some people along in that process. It's such an honor to be a part of that. So thank you very much. I'm here today to talk to you about some of my goals and visions for 2018. I'm truly trying to build a team 
With more people involved, we can take this project much further than just with myself. I'm still maintaining the same inspiring goals that I did before. We're going to find the most inspiring guests in the world. There's no one that's going to be too untouchable for us. We're going to be seeking those people out. I'm going to be writing them letters. I'm going to be talking to their PR people. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get them to sit down with me, and I'm going to ask them everything related to the root of their how and their why of purpose. And I'm doing so in order for you to truly live out your purpose. I believe that by listening to these guests, you're able to step into their shoes and find something relatable that, that you can pull out and you can truly live to your fullest potential. I recognize in myself the impact my podcast has had on me. My life has been incredible. I've been able to sit down with guests, disseminate wisdom, make thoughtful decisions, and make tons of progress towards a lot of my dreams. So I'm actually heading to Southeast Asia for the next few months, and then I'll be coming to San Francisco. And... I'm going to be a teacher, and I'm really excited to get started with that process. So as we move forward with the, with the podcast, I also hope that we can draw new people in. I hope that your energy towards people of purpose becomes infectious, and we can create online groups and communities and support networks, and we can, we can share resources, and we can truly all engage one another into living more purposefully. I recognize the responsibility I'm in right now as, as the host of this podcast. And I'm here today to ask for an inner circle. I'm asking you to pledge your support financially. So for just $10 a month, you can pledge to support People of Purpose podcast. I want to use all of my time purposefully in order to grow this podcast into the greatest thing it can be. I believe part of doing so is by being a living example of purpose. So for example, you take podcast editing. It takes about 60 to 70% of my time and it's not really a skill set that I have or desire to really, really develop. And if we were just able to have every single listener contribute $2 a month, we would be able to hire a full-time editor. That's just one small example of the team I'm trying to build. I want to support you in this journey, and I'm, I'm asking you to support me right now. I, I hope that you've seen the benefits, whether it be the actionable steps that, that the guests recommend or just this aha moment where someone just says the truth that, that truly resonates with you that maybe you've never thought about before or never heard before, but you know deep inside what, what that person's saying is true. I know as an interviewer, that's a wonderful feeling when I get that from a guest. So if you do really trust the journey we're on together, I'm asking you to trust this next step. I believe we truly need to assemble a People of Purpose podcast team. So with $10 a month, you can pledge your support. And if you give $20 a month, you'll be able to get People of Purpose gear, a video call with me where we discuss your purpose at length. And finally, I'll be able to give you whatever resources you may need to get you started on that very next step after our video call, whether that may be a book or an email introduction or a DVD or a webinar or whatever it may be. I'm going to do my very best to personalize this to you. So please pledge your support to People of Purpose podcast. Thank you very much. And here's to becoming People of Purpose.